Well, in a town in Germany, there's a graveyard that has been closed for many years. In the graveyard, you can find old stone monuments and gravestones which lie above uh, uh, some notable German characters. And in the graveyard, there's one particular monument that is notable. Not far from the church that shares the property, there's a monument that was broken some time ago. The monument built in 1782 is a gigantic block of sandstone which has been carved into the shape of steps and on the sides it was held together by iron bars. At the top of the block is chiseled this, Henriette Julianne Caroline von R., born von Willich, born in Nienburg, January 19th, 1756 and died April 15th, 1782. And below that it reads, she gave birth to three sons of heaven. She trod life's path here as she is treading it up there and was privileged to hasten to her fatherland. By itself, that's not very notable. But at some point, a seed from a nearby birch tree fell into the grave and from that a tree grew out of it. By 1918, the tree had become quite large, breaking through the stone monument. Now, Henriette was likely a Christian. You don't get more Lutheran than a German in Germany. Um, so she was likely a believer. She understood that once she died, she would meet her maker. Now, this is a, an illustration for us. That, that the tree that burst through the tomb, that broke through the tomb, is, is somewhat symbolic of what we are celebrating here right now. That even heavy stones couldn't stop that tree from sprouting. Anywhere there is concrete or cement, you can expect at some point for cracks to happen and for things to grow out through it. All it takes is a seed, and it will break through whatever's in its path. Now, we read the, the first 10 verses of John chapter 20 this morning, which describes the events surrounding the resurrection of Christ. And may, maybe you've come to church today just because it's Easter. Maybe you were dragged here, and I'm grateful that you were. I, that's awesome. No guilt. May, maybe you felt something and you're like, man, we need to be here on Easter Sunday. We just, we just really need to be here. Whatever the reason, you may not be into religion at all. And this, this may just, eh, it's just words, it's just a history book or something that's made up or, or whatever. And Easter to you is more about the lunch that you're waiting for after. Or for your kids, you're waiting for the chocolates and the, uh, and the bunnies and all sorts of Easter stuff that we do. And those are fine. See, I believe that Easter, similar to that tree that sprouted up in through the grave, Easter is about a grave that was broken. A stone that was moved and life coming forth. This message is, is just as applicable to, to you, if you're not a believer, as to those who are Christians. The gospel of Jesus Christ promises forgiveness to those who are guilty before God. And just so you know, all of us are on our own. Each and every person here today is guilty on their own before a perfect and righteous creator. But the gospel, the empty cross, the empty tomb, it promises hope to the hopeless and life to the lifeless. This is the gospel. This is the, the main subject of what we do every single Sunday. We proclaim a risen Christ. 
We put our hope and our life and everything that we believe and everything that we do is based on that truth that Jesus Christ has conquered death, that Jesus Christ has conquered the grave. Yes, we're suffering now. Yes, we face loss right now. But Jesus has already won the battle. We're just waiting for the fulfillment of all things that are promised. So with that said, let's dive into John chapter 20. My prayer this morning is that you see Jesus through this sermon and why you see the empty tomb It matters to us. And in verses 1 and 2, we see Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb. Now notice in verse 1, it says that it happened on the first day of the week. This is Sunday. All four Gospels calls the Resurrection Day Sunday, the first day of the week. And if you've wondered why Christians, why we worship on Sunday and not Saturday, it's because of this, that the, the, the historical fact that we see in Scripture is that Jesus rose on Sunday, so churches after that, Christians after that, gathered together on the Lord's Day, Resurrection Day, to, to celebrate what God had done. And John also notes something else interesting at the end of verse 1. He says that it was still dark. Now, I don't mean to dive too deep in here and, and to be too uh, illustrative in this, but, but the reality is that often you see this in the Gospels as there's kind of two meanings with words. So it was still dark. It was, the sun had not risen. It it was still dark outside. They They were using torches or they were going by the light of the moon or whatever lights that they had and they were going through it. But there's also a thematic reason that John put that it was dark. Jesus, the Savior, the God man, had died. The one that they had given their lives to had died. They watched him breathe his last breath. They watched his body be pulled down from the cross. They watched his body be wrapped in the burial cloth. They watched him be put in the tomb. And they watched the stone roll over. It was dark. Their world was shattered. Everything that they had believed in now, they were probably questioning. Wait, Jesus says he was God. We believed in him as the Messiah and he's gone. What do we do now? What do we do? It was dark. John's done this a few other times in his account where he gives kind of a meaning underneath the meaning. Good writers do this. They paint a picture for you. They, they describe something so you feel like you were there. And you can feel like you were there in the garden, that it was dark, but it was also dark spiritually. Everybody was depressed, anxious, worried, suffering. He crafts a vision for us so that we can see the story happening. Something else that deserves attention in this passage, too, is how Mary Magdalene is honored. We don't think about this much today because in most places, uh, the men and women are treated as equals, and it's rightfully so. Even in the church where we have different roles and in the family where we have different roles and responsibilities, we all stand equally guilty before God, and we're all equally image bearers, regardless of who we are, what we do, what we look like. But 2,000 years ago in Judea, this wasn't the case. A woman's testimony was not even admissible in court. Women were often viewed as property, certainly not as equals. And the fact that John goes out of his way to show that a woman came to the tomb is amazing. 
Shouldn't be surprising, though. Not knowing the rest of the book of John, in John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman, a Samaritan, a woman who had been divorced five times, and she was living with a man who wasn't her husband. By all accounts, she was not an upstanding, moral person. And being a Samaritan, she was unclean. Jews didn't go near them, except for Jesus. What did Jesus do? He talked to her. He broke the rules that the culture had enforced in order to obey God's standard of love, mercy, and truth. And what happened? Because he reached out to this outcast, she came to know him personally. And what did she do? Ran into town. Come see him. I found him. She became a missionary immediately, unheard of 2,000 years ago. Now, how is this relevant? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 29 says this, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring, nothing, bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Christian faith values women. And not only that, the Christian faith has valued historically groups of people who are marginalized, who are abused, who suffer injustice, the outcasts, the rejects, the lame. God says, no, I'm going to use you. You're rejected by the world. And I'm going to use you to change the world. Whether you're a man, woman, disabled, Samaritan, Jew, doesn't matter. I'm going to use you to accomplish my purposes. Here, John records a woman that should have been forgotten in history and through the power of the Holy Spirit shows that the Christian faith is one where we all stand equally before God. So Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb of Christ, certain that his body would still be there. Verse 2 says that when she saw that the stone had been moved, she ran to get Peter and John. Look at what she says. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Put yourself in her situation for a moment. You've given up everything to follow this one man. For at least a few years, you've traveled, you've listened, you've studied. He's explained how he is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. He's taught you. He's made the, the audacious claim that he is God. And you've given your life to him. And now he's gone. And so you, as a, as a loving family, as we often do, she uh, gathers the flowers together to go lay at the, the base of that tomb. And, and she, she's ready to, to, to cry and to weep and to mourn and to do all the things that we do. And as she makes a turn in that garden, she sees empty tomb. She sees the stone that's been moved. And so she looks around and she, she says, maybe I'm in the wrong place because certainly that can't be moved. The guards, where are they? So she looks around. No, this is it. Panic. Questioning. Not only have I lost my Savior, not have only lost my leader, they've taken his body away. Who knows what they're going to do with it now? And so she 
runs to get the others. Pilate knew this could happen. Matthew records this conversation in chapter 27. He says this, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and he said, sir, we remember how that imposter said when he, while he was to Jesus, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell his people he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Guards had been placed at the tomb to guard it. A large stone was rolled in the front. This would have been enough to prevent any grave robbers from getting to Jesus. It would have taken a lot of power to get in or out. And then in verses 3 through 7, we see Peter and John coming to the tomb. John, who is the author of this book, calls himself the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loves. He's saying, look, it's not about me. I wrote this, I compiled this, but focus on Christ. And you can see them running. And for whatever reason, John was a little bit faster than Peter. John got to the tomb first, but John was also scared. So he, he ran as fast as he could, and then he got there and kind of peeked in a little bit. But he was frightened. He didn't want to go in. He doesn't say why, but he wasn't eager to do it. I, I wouldn't be either. Would you, would you put yourself in that situation? Things weren't as they should be. The stone was moved, so they know that something is wrong here. It's not okay. It's kind of like if you drive home and you get out of your car and you look and you see your front door open. Something's not right. And this is how they felt. Maybe he was worried that whoever took Jesus out was out for the disciples next. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and he stayed outside until slow Peter made his way to the tomb. So Peter goes in and saw that the, the cloths were orderly and neat. This could not have been a robbery, because if you're stealing a body, you're not going to fold up the cloths. Makes no sense. And then in verse 8, John, it says that John finally went in, and he saw, and what? He believed. Have you noticed, when you read through the gospel accounts, how... The disciples often didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Now, we read the parables and we think, well, I don't know what he's talking about. We need, we need to really figure this out because some of them are strange. Some of them are hard to understand. And so more than one time, Jesus was saying, look, you guys don't understand. Let me explain it to you. They were knuckleheads sometimes. They had the, the greatest teacher in the history of everything. They had God in the flesh, and sometimes they just didn't get it. And so John goes into the, 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 the cave, the, the tomb, and he sees everything that's there. And he sees that Jesus isn't there. He doesn't see the guards anywhere. And he sees the cloths folded up. And he believed. It's almost as if everything started clicking. And he's remembering all the words that Jesus said to him. And he's like, oh, God, forgive me. I understand now. I get it. When you said that you will build this temple in three days, or you will resurrect it, tear it down, and I'll build it up in three days, you were talking physically temple, you were talking about you. Jesus is alive, and John believed. Maybe he remembered 
the temple. Maybe he remembered Psalm 16.10, which says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. It doesn't say, but John believed in the risen Christ. I want to pause just for a second to address something that may be weird. Maybe you don't care. It's okay. It's only a few minutes. When I was growing up, one of the big things that I saw on TV, they did the documentaries on the Shroud of Turin. You've seen that. You, you can Google image search that, and you can find that there is a burial cloth, and it looks like someone has somehow magically imprinted their face and body on this cloth. And the claim has been that it's Jesus. How anybody would know. I mean, the guy had a beard and there were some wounds on him. But there, there have uh, been statements about how holy it is and how people can be miraculously healed by looking at it. Now, is it possible? Man, anything's possible. Doesn't mean it's likely. Visiting the shroud in Turin, Pope Francis said this. The icon of this love is that the shroud that now, even now, has attracted so many people here to Turin. The shroud draws people to the tormented face and body of Jesus and at the same time directs people towards the face of every suffering and unjustly persecuted person. It's become an icon for many. It's, it's become a, a, a pilgrimage place. People have been claimed to be healed after looking at it like Fatima in Portugal or Lourdes in France. Speaking as a Christian who loves history, I would love for this to be real. It'd be kind of cool that you get to go and, and see something that Jesus touched. It's kind of like when you go to Washington, D.C., and you can go in the National Archives, and you can see the, the Declaration of Independence. Now you have to look through like 20 bulletproof glass, but, but you can see down in it, and you can see it. It's neat. It's, that's exactly what was written right there. That's the authentic version. Researchers, though, say that it was probably from the 12 or 1300s A.D., so much longer, much later than the time of Christ. Now, to some people, even questioning these relics is blasphemous. When the, um, if you remember in Notre Dame, the, in Paris, the fire in 2019, do you remember what happened um, during that fire? There was worry that some of the relics would be destroyed as well. And, and one thing that stands out to me um, was one of the priests came out. There was a video of this where the priest was holding this, this uh, glass ring, and inside of it was a crown of thorns. And those who, who uh, saw that would walk up and kiss the glass, thinking that that was the authentic crown of thorns that was on the head of Jesus, and they did whatever spiritual thing they were doing. I don't mean to be a hater, but anybody who questions this is quickly deemed to be a, a hater. But biblical faith in Christ is not the same thing as kissing a piece of glass or visiting a burial cloth with what looks like a person's face on it. Now, this is the, the point of all this sidebar. We may want to see those things. We may want to see an actual piece of the cross of Christ. We may want to know exactly where the tomb of Christ is. We may want to see the first edition of the letter to the church in Romans. That's got Paul's fingerprints all over it. We want to see that, but in reality, it's better that we don't. Why? Because we'd be kissing the glass, too. We'd be worshiping the items and not worshiping the Savior. We would be taking pilgrimages and spending money and time to go visit these things thinking that it's something holy and special when in reality it's a piece of paper or it's a cloth. 
This is not Indiana Jones. You do not get eternal life from drinking out of the cup of Christ. And we would do this. And I'm happy these things are long gone because we would worship the relics instead of the Savior. We would not be worshiping Jesus, rather worshiping wood or a cup or a cloth. Now, end of sidebar there. All this leads me to the next question based on this text. Why does the empty tomb matter for the Christian faith? Look at 1 Corinthians 15. This is what we call a first-tier issue. In other words, if you reject the idea of Christ rising from the dead, you have rejected the Christian faith. Look at what Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. A few things that Paul says happens, and this is a first-tier issue. A few things happen if Christ is not raised. First, our preaching is in vain. And it's not just the preaching that I do on Sunday morning. It is the proclamation that all of us do when we tell people about Christ. In reality, it's everything that we do, our worship, our fellowship, our preaching, our teaching, our reading of Scripture, all of it is in vain if Christ has not risen from the dead. Second, our faith would be in vain. What good is belief if what you believe is a lie? You can tell yourself a lie over and over again, but that will never make it true. We're seeing that in culture right now, don't we? You can constantly repeat something, and you can say over and over again that something is true, but the reality is two plus two equals four every single time. Truth is truth. Truth doesn't change. But if Jesus has not risen from the dead, our faith is no different than those who worship the flying spaghetti monster or worship some Egyptian god. Third, we, we would be misrepresenting God. Many of the early Christians came out of Judaism, which taught and still teaches that Jesus is not the Messiah and certainly not God. If Jesus were merely a man, what we're saying about Jesus is blasphemy. If what we say about Jesus, that he is fully God, fully man, that he is the savior of the world, that without his death on the cross and resurrection we are hopeless, that would be blasphemous if he's not God and if he's not risen from the dead. Fourth, our faith would be futile. Again, what good can a dead man or dead spiritual mystic do for us? Finally, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, you are still in your sins. Do you see how this is a first-tier issue? This is a, a top primary issue. In fact, this is the issue. This is the top of that tier pyramid when we talk about importance of Christian doctrine. You cannot deny the resurrection and still be a follower of Christ. You can't. And this is the most important thing that you'll hear me say today. If Christ is not raised, then we are still in our sin. I'm not saying that because it's Easter. I'm saying that because that's what the Bible points us to. That we are lost and we are hopeless and we are dead in our sin. And without the resurrection, we have no hope of life. We have no hope in anything. 
I've given my life work, many years of studying and schooling and a whole bunch of money given to seminaries and colleges and a lot of time sitting across tables with people, counseling people, working on sermons, meeting with people, having lunch with people, listening to criticisms which come. And I've done that. I've given my life for that. Not to make a paycheck, not to have a, a, a platform, not to, to have people saying, great job, pastor, great job, Brian. No, I've given my life because I believe this with all that I am. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that he is alive. I believe that he is at the right hand of the Father. And I believe that one day he will return to make everything okay. And to defeat death and sin once and for all to fix all of this mess. In Revelation 20, John saw what Jesus will do when he returns. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What this means is that when Jesus returns, those who have rejected him, those who have trusted in their own good works, will face eternal torment. In the lake of fire. It's not pleasant. We, we think about our friends and family who don't know Christ, and this should burden us. This should, this should drive us to, to shed many tears. Because we don't want anyone we love, anyone we care about. We don't even want our own enemies to, to die to go to hell. We pray for their salvation. I pray for those who have hurt me, and I, and I pray for those who have hurt you to come to know the living Christ. And my prayer is that you recognize if you're not a Christian, what every Christian before you has recognized. My prayer is that you see that God is perfect and holy and righteous and just. And because of that, God cannot allow sin to achieve any victory. For God to allow sin to go unpunished would be to go against his own character. And we wouldn't want him to do that. He can't do that. When we see someone hurting someone or if we know that someone has hurt someone else, we want them to be punished, don't we? We want them to, to face judgment. If you've lost someone at the hands of someone else, you want that murderer or the guilty party to pay for what they've done. It's only just. It's only right. Even the harshest critic of the judicial system would say that criminals need to pay some kind of penalty for what they've done. And so here's the question I have for you. What about your crimes? You say, well, wait, I've got a clean record. I've never been arrested. I've never been in jail. I've never done anything wrong. I, I, I'm a perfectly moral person. I haven't done anything wrong. I help people. I, I, I feed people when I can. I do all of this stuff, and I, I'm, I'm a good person. question is, what about the things you've done against God? Well, I've never blasphemed. I've, I've done all that I can to be faithful to him. I, 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 again, I'm a good person. For that, I, we begin with the premise that there is a God, and if there is a God, he gets to make up the rules because he is God. 
And since he gets to make up the rules, all of his creation is commanded to do what he says. He is the perfect and just creator who can do no wrong, and his standards reflect that character. In other words, God's law, his standard, is how you and I are measured. It's how we can determine whether or not we're good enough to achieve eternal life. And so you really only have two choices in this, and the choices that most people make is that they're good enough. If you ask someone who's not a believer, are you a good person, inevitably they're going to say yes. Write me a list of how you're a good person. And they'll give you a long list. And you say, that's admirable. That's good. I, I appreciate the work that you've done. You've, you've made people's lives better. You've done good things. But the problem is we don't create our own standard. This is, this is the world we live in today, this postmodern world where there is no truth. That everyone gets to make up their own reality. What's good for you is good for you. What's right for me is right for me. Which means that they get to create in their minds their own standard of what is good. In, in other words, the culture that we live in makes every single person a little god. They are the creator. They are the determiner. They are the authority. Our definitions of what is good really don't matter though. Not according to scripture. If God is the creator, he gets to determine what is right and wrong. And we know that his standard is the only one that really matters. And because he is holy, he demands that we be holy as well. Hmm. That's all? All we have to do is be holy and righteous. Good luck. You can't. I can't, you can't, no one can. And maybe you've never heard the gospel presented this way. Maybe you've, you've never heard this before. Maybe you've never heard the gospel at all. But this is what the Bible says about God. And it really makes sense when you understand his nature and his character. So all we have to do is be holy. And so the question is, do you meet this standard? I've met people who think they are. I'm sure you have too. Do we meet the standard? Can we say that our life is holy? Can we say that our life is defined by unblemished devotion and worship to God? Herein lies the problem. The Bible tells us a lot about God's holiness. That's his, the character that we read about most in Scripture, his holiness. But the Bible also talks about our sinfulness a lot. Listen to what it says. No one is good, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see the problem? God demands holiness, and yet we are not holy. Problem. Religions all over the world get this. They understand that there is something that they must do, something that they must accomplish in order to appease the creator. And Christianity says you can't. Christianity says you can work your fingers to the bone and there is nothing that you can do to please God on your own. You cannot earn his favor. You cannot make him happy by yourself. So what do we do? We've sinned against God, and that demands an equal punishment. 
I want you to think about this, this, what Easter really is. Think about how Jesus bled and died so that your penalty and mine could be paid. Jesus did that for us. See, the joy of Easter comes in the empty tomb, but it's not just the empty tomb. The joy of Easter comes when the empty tomb gives to us what it does. Those who die in their sin, in their own good works, judgment will come swiftly. But for those who are in Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law and from death. For the Christian, the empty tomb means that God has defeated death for his people. It means that sin no longer controls us. It means that we won't be judged for our own good works, but instead we will stand before God with the righteousness of Jesus being given to us. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter all the sins that we've committed. Jesus' grace is enough, more than enough, to cover each and every single one. This is why Easter is essential to the Christian faith. This is why Easter is so important for us. It is not just a good story about a good man dying and then coming back to life. It's about God in the form of a lowly man suffering and dying and then rising again, all to conquer sin and death and bring life to those who believe. And so this morning, I want to challenge you. If you haven't trusted in Christ, if there is not a point in your life where you said, yes, I repent of my sin, I trust in Jesus. Repent means to turn. If you have not ever done that this morning, what a beautiful day to do it. I challenge you. If God is the creator of the universe, you have to answer to him. Each and every one of us must give an account. And you have one of two choices. Either you stand on your own or you say, I've done nothing, but Jesus has done everything. Those are your two options. And so this morning as we opened up scripture, I pray that God's word uh, worked in your heart. I pray that God is moving in your heart. If you don't know Christ, come talk to me. We'll stay today. I've got nothing. It's Easter. There's nothing else to do except talk about Jesus. Stay after. We'll talk. And for the Christian, if you need help working through some things, if you need a, a, a God's word poured out in your life, come talk to us as well. This is not just a story. This is not just something that's part of our history. This is, this is not just another aspect of our doctrine or theology. No, this is the center of everything that we believe. Without this, we have no hope. Without this, we are to be pitied. Without this, we are fools. But Jesus is alive. And he's returning again to gather up his people. And this is what we wait for. This is what the empty tomb points to. Would you pray with me?